Welcome to the Cost of Goods Told podcast. My name's Connor. I'm a chef and media producer. I am joined, as always, by my co-producer, Darren Lafferty. Hey, hey. Veteran in the food service industry. <laughs> this never mic sounds on. right, but I appreciate it. Hey, we'll, we'll find a title in season two or something, right? <laughs> Um, we are joined by Chef Austin Simmons. Uh, I will say something ahead of time real quick so people know everything that you've kind of got your hands on. Um, so our listeners know he's the executive chef of Tris, executive chef of The Kitchen. He also does an eight-course uh, tasting dinner uh, called Curate and also the collaboration dinner series Collaborate. This way people know what you have your hands on. So let me just give us a quick schedule real quick. Tris is open Tuesday through Saturday for lunch, happy hour, and dinner. Curate is Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays for the dinner series. The kitchen is open Monday through Sunday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and brunch Saturday and Sunday. The Collaborate 8 series is on Mondays typically at dinner. And then you do special events, <laughs> the Houston Barbecue Festival, media and promotion of actually other chefs on social media. Um, so if that's not an introduction, I don't know what is, but I mean, guys. tell me if I missed show. something. Yeah. I wash dishes well. <laughs> I was say, he's also head diaper changer at his house. Yeah, yeah head diaper changer. <laughs> my wife does most of that. Thank, thank, thank You're you, You're a lucky honey. man. You're lucky thank man. you, honey. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. No, with, with that type of schedule, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast, Absolutely. man. Seriously. Um, there's a lot to get to. Typically in part one, we like to just do kind of like a background. Um, you can talk about as much as you want or as little as you want, but if you could just kind of get us started in uh, what brought you to cooking. So I was a, uh, an absolute train wreck in high school. Uh, I liked to party and chase women, and I thought quitting baseball and doing that was... Uh, my priority freshman year and, and in hindsight I should have played baseball but uh, so you know I, I, I started working at 15 I maintained a job but I liked to party and and, and um, by senior year it caught up with me um, I, I had no direction on really what I wanted to do I actually mowed and weed eat and edged the baseball and soccer fields that I grew up playing on oh, sure. as I went through high school um as torture for yourself like hey i quit all this so i'm gonna cut the grass well my mom always worked for the city okay so it was a city job all it right. paid well um and you know i like to be outside and okay cool. you know i put my headset in and get after it i quit the day they told us we couldn't have earphones really uh, who wants to edge with no earphones i mean <laughs> why would you want to do that i mean you're just you're protecting your ears right yeah, yeah. you are but yeah, jamming yeah. jamming back then it was probably r&b and rap i think but uh <laughs> uh you know so i i really had no direction my dad and my parents are split and my dad's always been around uh, my stepmom and they you know what do you want to do you know we want you to go to school and, and do something and I, i'm not going back to school i mean i barely graduated um, and then <clears throat> I always liked cooking because of, of my Mima who raised me. She was an in-home daycare babysitter and she was like cast iron pan, Crisco. Um, and, and I would sit on the counter and watch her and, you know, her daycare center was in the garage. Now, where is this? Uh, this was in Arlington, Texas. Okay. I, I right, so you're, su you're a Southern boy. I am. And my dad, my dad's lived in San Antonio with my stepmom for years. Okay. My stepmom's extremely talented cook, a foodie, if you will. Um, and then my mom worked a couple of jobs while I was young to make sure I, we stayed in the house we were in. And um, in between those jobs, I would start, I would try to cook when we'd spend time together. I mean, I started riding my bike third grade. 
to school on my own mornings and and afternoons uh well we lived four streets from the elementary What's but that? i think about that now with my daughter i'm like no way ride my, you ride my bike at third grade no way yeah um, so in that time between her day and nighttime job, we would cook something or I try to have meals ready or, or cook something for her. Um, so I like to cook. I, w- I thought I was decent at cooking, but growing up, it wasn't something I did all the time by any means. I mean, uh, I guess when, you know, I smoked enough blunts, I probably cooked a lot of things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm looking at the PR guy behind us here. Hey, we got the we got the thumbs up. We're good to go. So I saw the court. On, you know, I loved Emerald Life. Uh, okay. Emerald is a real reason, part of the reason why I decided to go to culinary school. Uh, and great chefs, great cities. I don't know if you remember that show or not, but that was on. Uh, I think it was early Discovery Channel before it was Discovery. I don't remember what the name of it was. Um, hmm. And so I saw the court on blue. I go visit my dad the next weekend, and I'm like, I want to go to culinary school. And he's like, You want to go where? And I said, Culinary school. He goes, You want to cook? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, you don't want to cook. And I'm like, no, I, I really, you know, I want to cook. And my stepmom, of course, loved it. And, and uh, she said, yeah, I think it's a great idea. And so, of course, my mom supported it. I went to culinary school. You know, I think very few people find what they're good at at a young age right. mm-hmm. and then be passionate about it. Right. So I believe, in my personal opinion, how you get a professional athlete, you have talent and drive. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and, and those are not the same. And, and talent, in my opinion, is a God gift. Uh, if you don't have the drive to go with it, you're not going to get to the top. But if, right. if it's hard to have one or the other. But when you have both, you can get there quickly. And so I found 18 in culinary school. You know, I was a C student in the six weeks of classroom. But in the six weeks of lab, I was in the top 2%. Well, let me tell you what I had the talent of. I'm ADD. Okay. And <laughs> so multitasking is right in your wheelhouse. Multitasking, I'm a smoke show. I mean, I, I, I can work... <laughs> I can work five or six things at one time and not forget any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a visual rememberer, if you will. I mean, I can see something today and then see it again the next day, and it will it will remind my brain of four or five things that I needed to remember. Well, hence why lab was so successful and probably book work wasn't so much. You Correct. Know? Yeah. I can relate to all that you just said. Correct. Uh-huh. So I did so well in labs, and I just loved it. I mean, you know, the reaction you get when you cook somebody an awesome meal it's real-time feedback. It's emotional. It's, um, it's, it's praise that, that you often long uh, when, you're, when you grow up and you're probably not the model student, right? Yeah, I was yeah. a guy in high school that yeah. was a burnout. Now they're all Facebooking <laughs> me going, man, look at what you've done. And I'm like, yeah, look at Can what I've done. Can we come eat? Can we come see you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would have never thought I'd have done that. Yeah. Um, so I fell in love with it, and then I got lucky. Uh, and I say I got lucky, some drive. Um, I went through culinary school, still kind of a mess, although I like to cook. The saucier from the mansion on Turtle Creek came to our, our graduating class. We're in the last lab, and he said, uh, he talked to us about the industry and what it's done for him. He graduated there. And he says, you know, we take some externs. I grew up in Arlington, Texas. I had never heard of the mansion on Turtle Creek. I didn't even know it existed. We were a blue-collar family, right? I mean, it wasn't, yeah. what is the mansion? Back then, the internet was just starting to be something. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, so I looked up the mansion, and I went up to him, and I said, I'd love to be an extra. And he said, well, come up and try some food. I'm like, man, that's kind of weird. Seems like a pretty nice place. So Friday, I toured to Dallas, drove up. <laughs> I, I pulled into the mansion on Turtle Creek. I valeted my car, and I went up to the front desk, <laughs> and I said, I'm, 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 well, you know, through culinary school, I delivered milk for Oak Farm, so I was a vendor. Oh, yeah, oh okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. And they paid me extremely well. So I was making seventeen fifty an hour. 
18 to 19, going to culinary school, delivering milk on an 18-wheeler. I was the rider, right. and I downstacked milk for Walmart. So okay. we had three Walmarts on our route. <laughs> so I would get up at 3 a.m., deliver milk. I would go to school from 12 to 5 and then do all that over again. And I did that for 15 months. And so, you know, yeah, I, I made a little bit of coin and I, I valeted my car. And, and uh, <laughs> Oh, you valeted on purpose. No, I, I didn't know any better, to be honest. In, in hindsight, I really didn't know any better. So I, I went into the front desk and I said, hey, I'm here to apply for an externship in the kitchen. And the lady says, where did you park? And I said, I valeted. She says, no, <laughs> sir, you got to go move your car back through security and go apply through security. Uh, I mean, okay. the mansion is such a high profile place. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Your cooks don't walk to the front door. It's just <laughs> how that works. Um, <laughs> so I, I went, know the life lesson learned. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I didn't know there were places that were five star, five diamond. What, what did that mean? <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I understood. <laughs> So I went back and talked to the, the saucier and he took me around the kitchen, showed me the place. And he's like, you know, we really appreciate you coming, but you have no restaurant experience. This is just really not where you start. And um, yeah, I, was, I didn't take no for an answer. So I, I, I was pretty down, but my mom lived in Arlington. So okay. it was an excuse to go see her. So I drove back to, or, uh, to Austin. Next Friday, drove back. Met with the set through security, didn't tell him I was coming. The executive sous chef comes out in an hour and he's like, man, thank you so much for coming up. Looks at my resume, says you don't have any experience. This is just not where you start. Okay. I said, okay. So I drove back to Austin next Friday, went right back up. I met with the chef de cuisine. He pretty much said the exact same thing. You need to, he, and he told me, he says, you need to go to more like a chain restaurant where you can get your knife skills down. You can work on... In hindsight, that was BS because, you know, high-end restaurants are where you get your knife skills right. down because they're doing the most knife work. Sure. Yeah. Not a chain. <laughs> Maybe sure. I should have went home and done some knife work, but, uh, you know, I think I think that was depressing. So I went back and, you know, I just, I wasn't going to go back. And I remember sitting on my couch saying, you know, what the hell with this? This is where I want to do my externship. I can live with my mom and I can drive to Dallas and do this. And, you know, I think I can handle it. So Arlington's only 45 minutes from Dallas. 45 minutes. Okay. <laughs> That's a quick, quick jaunt. Yeah, you, you can make it work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I figured that I wasn't going to make much money being an extern in culinary. What I didn't know is what they were going to offer me. But uh, <laughs> so I drove back and I'm set through security. They may wait three hours. Executive sous chef comes out and he's like, man, you're not going to go away, are you? And I said, man, I'm not. <laughs> I really want to work here. And he says, all right, we'll give you an externship. Um, we're going to pay $7.45 an hour. I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, all right, <laughs> I, you know, I, fair enough. I'll take it. Uh, and, and at the time, I was really, I, you know, I was making good money an hour. I barely made enough money to have gas money to get back to my mom's house. And thank God she lived in Arlington. Or I don't know how I would have made it. But thank God I did. And if I would had it to do over again, I'd have done it for free. Mm. I would have just figured out how, how to make that happen. Because the mansion was a brigade. And you don't see that in very few places in the States today. You know, you go to Europe, you see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all forms of stagies and comies and, and, and stuff like that. Here, you can't afford to have a brigade. Right. And, and had I known what the mansion was, I probably would have never shown up. I mean, my first three weeks in that place, I was lost. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, it's funny. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a chef in Houston right now. Nick Fine okay. is a culinary director for uh, Chris Shepard's restaurants currently. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen him since he's been back. He was in New York for a while. The very first cook I worked with in this industry was Nick Fine. Oh, how cool. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him. And we, we, we haven't gotten together, but I don't even know if he remembers me, to be honest. But my first job at the Mansion Arts Little Creek was, a, was the bar station. 
the bar station was right next to the, the, the grill and roast station. Okay. So I show up my very first day, and he hands me three five-gallon buckets of new potatoes, and he says, you need to quarter these. And by the way, this is my prep for my station. So when you quarter these, toss them in olive oil, salt, pepper, rosemary, roast them, then you can get on your prep. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, it smokes. It's three o'clock. I says, "What does this need to be done?" He says, "Your my prep needs to be done by four forty-five. Your prep needs to be done yesterday." Welcome to seven forty-five an hour. And I'm like, "Holy smoke!" So yeah. I cut a potato, flip the two halves side. I turn the two halves both ways, and I cut this potato, and then I cut this potato. And he walks up and he goes, "Dude, you're never gonna finish that." I'm like, "I can tell. I'm never gonna finish this." <laughs> so he slices it, rolls it, slices it, turns it, slices it, and dumps it in the bucket. And he's like, "This is how you cut these potatoes." Mm-hmm. I think I cut myself three times cutting those potatoes before I could get through it. But in three weeks, I mean, I could roll through them. Yeah, but yeah. I was so intimidated. I mean, like, who has to cut five you know, sure. buckets of new potatoes? And not just cut them. For, for listeners who may not be familiar with the brigade system or, or how an establishment like that, because there are far and few between here in Houston especially. Um, but like when you say call me, it's basically bitch of the kitchen. Yeah. And then when you say the prep work and everything, not only do you have to quarter those potatoes, but you got to do them in perfection and super fast, you know, and that's, that's a skill set that, you know, you just, yeah, you can be taught a little bit in culinary school. Three weeks to survive. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it can, it can, it can be really rough starting at the bottom of the rung because when you say brigade, it really is militaristic style where it's like you answer to the guy right above you. He answers to that guy, you know, and everybody's got their station. They got their prep. Um, So yeah, when you, when you talk about quartering potatoes, it ain't like, oh, you know, Hey, how you doing? No, it's freaking get down to business and quarter these freaking potatoes you know for sure it was and and you know nick was a great a great guy to 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 watch and nick is a talented talented cook um chef now um and and he really owned that station and so watching him to start was was a really good example of how to be a good line cook and you know put your head down and just bang it out um Luckily for me, John Tezar came to, you know, when I started, it was Dean Faring, and I, Dean Faring was transitioning into the Ritz-Carlton um, out of the mansion, which was legendary for them. Mm-hmm. John Tezar was the guy that got rehired there or, or took over his position. And um, luckily for me, as John Tezar came in and analyzed the line, my station was right there. I'm very common sense sound. I can, I can talk to anybody. So he would just say, this is wrong, and that's wrong. I'm like, yeah, it kind of looks wrong in his mind and I would just agree with him because that was what I needed to do yes, sir, yes, sir, yes sir. And, and, and I would also give some opinion just to, you know maybe some ebb and flow that that could have been a little bit more efficient um and uh he took a liking to me and and within a year I mean I you know he I'll never forget I was putting up tortillas Dean's tortilla soup in the back in the back prep area and Tzar came up to me and goes hey you want to make some real money in this industry and I said I'd like to like make a little bit more than I'm making now. That'd be really good. And he's like, just just pay attention and understand I'm going to be really rough on you, but I'm going to get you there. And I'm going to get you there quick. And I'll be damned if he didn't. I was, you know, he remodeled the mansion, 80-seat uh, restaurant. He built a 22-seat chef's room. Most people don't even remember it because it was only open a year and a half. Um, went to his departure, they closed it. Uh, but at the time, there was no other food coming out of the state the way that 22 seats was. He got the fifth star back. He got the fifth diamond back. James Beard was all over us. I mean, we were every national writer was in the restaurant. It was, it was a cool time. And I was 19 and a half, and I was a lead line cook of it. I, I, I worked, he moved me up through every station on the line in like six months, and then moved me over as a lead line cook of the chef's room. We were doing three different tasting menus: chefs, vegetarian, seafood, all at one time. And a table could have mixed menus. So if you wanted oh. seafood, vegetarian, I'm having chefs, no issues. And it was two cooks and him plating. 
we'd pass everything to the pass. He'd turn around and plate everything and send it out. We had a pastry chef and a sous chef that did the canapé tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, within that, I think we operated the, man- or the chef's room for a year and maybe four months, maybe six. Um, we used every ingredient from the sea and the land you could think of. Uh, about, you know, we did everything at the mansion other than whole animal butchery, really. Uh, and so knowing what I know now, what I learned in that short period of time about cuisine was priceless. Right. And, oh, yeah. you know, I just thought that's how restaurants operate. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is how it is, you know. And um, Tzar got pulled from the mansion, so I, I got an offer for uh, – uh, a casual restaurant to be a sous chef. I was making twenty seven thousand a year, and they offered me thirty four, and I thought I hit the jackpot. That's it, baby. <laughs> and I'm like, we're big time. Honey. My executive sous chef is like, you're going where? And I said, I won't mention the name, but I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm going. And he's like, are 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 you sure? And I'm like, well, I mean, ten more thousand a year, I can party a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and so my first day as a sous chef on the job, the chef says, can you start the mashed potatoes? And I said, sure. So I grabbed the pot and I'm running to the kitchen looking for the mashed potatoes. Can't find, I can't find the potatoes. He said, they're in the walk-in. I'm like, okay. So I go in the walk-in. I'm looking everywhere in the walk-in. Can't find the potatoes. <laughs> I go back to the chef. I'm like, chef, I'm looking everywhere. I cannot find the potatoes for these mashed potatoes. And he says, they're in the box, in the walk-in, yep, in the top right. shelf. <laughs> yep. And I'm like... Well, okay, potatoes in a box. Interesting. So I, I'm, I'm literally, I'm dumbfounded. I really don't know any better. They were hibernating them. They were hibernating yeah, them. In yeah. the box they were, they were fermenting them. Yeah. They were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> new technique that we didn't know about. So I go in there and pull these potatoes out of the box, and they're frozen in a bag. And I'm like, oh, my God. What do I do with these? So I grabbed the margarine, which is like liquid butter for yeah. these guys. Yeah. and you know, a, a, a spatula, and I grab a pot, and I'm whipping these things with butter. I'm, I'm salting them. I'm trying to get some flavor into them. And he comes with me. He goes, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm making the potatoes." He goes, "You take a pot of boiling water. You bring it to a boil. You drop the bag in the water. Oh man, cut boiling, the bag open. Bag in the bowl. B- boil in the bag. Already made mashed potatoes. When they get hot, you take them out. You drop them in the steam well, and you put a cover on them. I'm like." you don't even add butter to this shit? And he's like, no. And I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? Yeah. What did I go from the most scratch kitchen you could ever be in right. to uh, potatoes in a bag? Those listening, how important is the second half of that compared to the first half? Culinary school versus real world. So I think it's, it's, it's you can look at it a bunch of different ways, but here's my opinion. I learned more in the first three weeks at the Manchester Little Creek about how to operate a restaurant <laughs> mm-hmm. than I learned in 15 months in culinary okay. school. But what I will tell you about culinary school is this, and we're in a real, a weird in-between in culinary schools right now, and some are closing, and, I, and I, a lot of that's due to how the chef world ignited through TV, in my opinion. Um, I like culinary school for an 18-year-old out of high school because it shows discipline and it shows commitment. And you can get your feet wet and really decide if that's really what you want to do. Um, I think there needs to be a better interim program for culinary school. Here's a three months intern or startship or whatever you want to call it right. mm-hmm. to see if that's really what they want to an do. Introduction to, right. uh, an introduction to um, is a great way to put it. I think I advise kids this. Look, if you want to go to culinary school out of high school, I think it's great. Go to the CIA, get a dorm room, spend 15 months, get the education, show the, the commitment. Right of getting up every day and going and accomplishing something. Right. Um, I think that's really good. For somebody that's in the middle of their career and wants to take a, a 360 and get in the restaurant business, I think getting in the restaurant business under someone who's got some integrity as a chef 
and an operator is the best thing you can do because culinary school doesn't teach you how to operate a busy restaurant. They teach you how to cook classic cuisine on so many levels. You, You do end up working in a restaurant, but it's very controlled and very different than what a busy, chaotic restaurant really is. Right. So to answer your question, I, I, I think it's good in some cases. Yeah. Um, I often recommend a lot of kids that are wanting to change what they're doing to not go spend that money. <clears throat> Get in the industry and make sure you love it first. Yeah. Because there's so many days that I don't care how passionate you are about food, it's hard to love it. Yeah, I, I agree. I know, like you said, there's a lot of things going on with the culinary schools and so forth. I was fortunate enough that I could take a round ball and put it in a hoop. So Johnson & Wells said, hey, why don't you come up here and get an education? And I actually went the management route and then went into the culinary side of things after I had a management degree. And what I try and tell kids is, you know, hey, if you want to go into culinary school, one, take take a couple months talk to a chef, say you'll work for free, you know, and just do it for a week, you know, and, and I mean, you know, don't, don't do it at the, the Red Lobster or something like that. Do it at, you know, one of these, you know, establishments that's getting written up, you know, that has a credible chef like you're talking about. Make sure you like that. Then if you do go to culinary school, you get what you get out of it. If you go in there and you're working hard and you're putting your head down and, you, and, and you're executing in the lab and, and things like that, and also getting kind of that, that business side of things as well, you can come out of it with some different things. I, I went the management route in the fact that I wanted to come away with a food, uh, food service degree where it's like, okay, look, maybe I don't love working in the kitchen or something like that. I can run anything that I could run a freaking grocery store or something along those lines. Sure. Um, but, you know, then after, you know, a couple of years of working in the management side saying, you know what, now I need to get, you know, my chef's chops, you, you start back down at the bottom and you really find out if you love it. But I think kids need to get that experience initially to make sure that they like it. And then when they do go to culinary school, it's one of those where the harsh reality is you're gonna come out of culinary school, even a four year degree, you know, sometimes, and you're gonna get eight fifty nine dollars an hour. You're not coming out a chef unless, I mean, you're doing lots and lots of um, internships or something throughout your culinary school career. And I know that that's a long tangent and I apologize, but I think that that's just something no, that no, I think needs to be discussed. You're you know? absolutely correct. I, and I agree with you. I think going back after you know you love it, you get a lot more out of culinary school. If you're, oh, if, yeah. if you're already in love with cuisine, uh, classic Beurre Blanc means something to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're not in love with cuisine yet and you don't know that's what you want to do for the rest of your life, then let me teach you how to make one that won't break every five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I think, I, think, I think that's, you're exactly correct. I mean, kids, it's funny, uh, a story recently, my, before my stepmom retired, she was high up in AT&T, and she, one of her counterparts of a different region's son was at, it was at, uh, was at A&M, and he was, he's a 4 student, and he was studying to be an engineer, and he came home one summer, and he said, Dad, he's a sophomore, he said, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to go, I want to go be a chef, I don't want to do this anymore, and his dad's just like, wait, wait, wait a minute, point oh, you're going to be an engineer, like, what, you know, and he says, I'm, I'm not doing it, I've already looked at the culinary school I want to go to, I want to roll in it, and I want to, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going back to class. And so he's just lost. And he called my stepmom and said, hey, will Austin work with this kid? Um, I mean, I, obviously, if this is what he want to do, I'll support it. But I, I really want to see if he'll support it. And I said, yeah, sure. So I, I, con- I contact his dad contacted me. I said, look, we'll work. We're going to work uh, nine to nine. And we're going to work six days this week because I got a lot going on. And I'm going to leave him with me. And I'm going to start him in the dishwasher, and then I'm going to move him to prep, and then he's going to. I, by the time this week's over, he'll do some cool stuff with me. But we're going to make sure he understands what the food sure. business is like. 
So his dad puts him up in this dump hotel on the east side of 1960. <laughs> Sends him to the woodlands every day. Nothing's going to be fancy oh, right it, for this one week. Yeah, no, he, he, wanted, he, really he really didn't really want him to. <laughs> they had a shooting at his I hotel. Oh, I mean, oh, it, was, it was terrible, this poor kid. Uh, but he comes in, and we, we start... We start working together, and I put him through the paces. And you know, you could tell he liked to cook, but he, you know, he hadn't done much of it, which was fine. <laughs> the third day, he comes in. He works until noon. He comes up to me, and goes, "Chef, I've made a terrible mistake." And I'm like, "What? What do you mean you made a mistake?" And he says, "This is not for me. I, 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 you guys are, you people are nuts. I mean, just to, <laughs> at the pace that you guys work in this kitchen." He says, "I just can't wrap my brain around it." So he said, I appreciate your time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and, and thank you for everything. And he was terrified. And I'm like, hey, no, thank you. I hope, I hope it all works out for you. And he went straight home to his dad and he said, I'll go back to A&M tomorrow. I yeah. love it. That's great, though. I'll that, go back know, to A&M tomorrow. They need it, you know. They, and had he had gone mm-hmm. through culinary school, and that's where I think culinary school is a problem right now because of TV and celebrity yeah, yeah, chefs yeah. and how, you know, everybody thinks it's a rock star industry. Right. These kids are get, convincing their parents to go to culinary school. They're blowing 50 grand. Yeah. Kids come out of culinary school, they get a restaurant in the first three weeks. They're like, I can't, I don't want to do this. This is yeah. not what I thought it was. Right, right, right. And so now parents are pulling back on it. And they, the culinary schools don't have the demand they had that they needed to build mm-hmm. when that food network went nuts. And we're all watching it going, hey, being a TV chef sounds like the coolest thing it, ever. And they banked on every single one of those kids, you know, so. They did. Well, that man, that's a great introduction. And I think we can probably still go, we can keep going on that. Why don't we take a quick break for our sponsor, Duke's Premium Meats. We'll come right back with part two. So you guys stick around for more with Chef Austin Simmons here at Beavers on Westheimer. Thank you. Duke's Premium Meats Home Delivery is your one-stop shop for premium quality meats delivered right to your doorstep. Delivering all over the United States, Duke's Premium Meats offers you the best in quality by personally working closely with local ranchers and butchers. Duke's Premium Meats offers everything from fillets and lobster tails to heart-shaped ribeyes, to Texas Ray's Wagyu brisket. Get amazing meat delivered right to your door by using Duke's Premium Meats. Visit their site at www.dukespremiummeats.com. We're we're here today with a special guest, Chef Austin Simmons, Chris, and several other <laughs> several other adventures that you have going on nonstop. We're going to talk about some of that. So for those just joining us, you know, part one was about how he grew up. Austin, you know, how some of the troubles that you had, yep. self-admitted troubles, how you fought for a couple of jobs that you really wanted, and you have come such a long way, I think, through talent and drive. And so with that being said, let's talk a little bit about, you know. Well, we did skip a, we, I think we did skip a, skip a step from where you were working, like you said, kind of the casual restaurant with the, the bag of potatoes. And then there's another step in between. Um, because your stint at the, the mansion was pretty long. You know, 2000, it was three and a half, all four years. Yeah. Okay. Three and a half, four years. And then I was at the casual place for a year. And then John Tizar decided he was going to open Tizar's Modern Seafood and Steak in the Woodlands. And you worked under him. And uh, he went to New York. I went to the casual restaurant. In hindsight, <laughs> maybe I should have chased him in New York. Uh, but look, I learned a lot in the casual restaurant too. So um, I, fought, I, I, I packed up everything. He called me and said, I'm doing a restaurant in the Woodlands. I said, I'm there. Uh, I packed up everything I own, moved everything to the Woodlands. Um, and we ran that restaurant for about a year. It was, uh, it was undercapitalized from an investment standpoint. There's some shady stuff going on with money from the investor side okay um and tzar is you know tzar i mean he's you know it was um 
I'm not real sure what all went on with all that, to be honest. I ended up running that restaurant after he left um, because I guess, he, you know, I think in hindsight, he just had enough of all of it. Yeah. Um, so he actually went back to Dallas, and me and Jeremy Robinson ran it for about four months, and uh, we were we were driving down to the farmer's market every day to get product. We were going to uh, Restaurant Depot. I mean, the owners would come in and hand us cash every day. This is what you have to spend on product, and it was just a... It was a mess. <laughs> it was a great restaurant for for a quite a few months. It was extremely busy. I just, I, you know, I, I. One thing about investing in restaurants is if you can't get them open and be debt free, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you're trying to pay all the opening costs while you have food and alcohol bills coming in, right? Uh, you might as well not even open it. Yeah. That's my advice. Uh, Let so, alone a, a chef forward restaurant like correct. that too. You know. <laughs> yeah, it would have been fine had they not. I mean, we all the Ed Dom bills started coming in, and I'm like, hey, you know, I mean, y'all <laughs> haven't taken care of these because you know, equipment. Oh yeah. yeah, you're trying to pay equipment bills while you're paying inventory bills. It's uh, <laughs> you can't do enough sales for that. Sure. Um, so, anyways, um, I left there and Hubble and Hudson Market and Bistro is down the street. We had traded them a steamer uh, for <laughs> store credit, um, and I would go down there and buy sandwiches for the guys and check the place out. I really liked it. It was very unique, and um, I ended up going down there and applying for a job after after uh, I left there. Um, and got sous chef position. So for listeners outside of Houston or who may not have been to Hubble and Hudson, this was where they had the grocery store, they had the restaurant, and then they also had like the Viking cooking classes upstairs. You know, it was just such an awesome concept. You know, it's so cool. My wife and I have engagement photos there. You know, so like no lie. Yeah. Wow, you proposed her there. No, no, I mean, we we, we got uh, photos done. I didn't propose to her there. No, that's crazy. No, we did like kind of the Woodlands area or whatnot, but I love that concept so much because it was just like, oh man, this is just everything a chef could want. You know, like, you know, I mean, it was. Like I said, you know, you had kind of three different sections and so forth. And yeah, that so. was part of the problem. It needed toilet paper. You know, <laughs> house mom doesn't want to go to four grocery stores to get right. everything she needs right. for the yeah. week. Uh, but, you know, look, the market was a playground. There's yeah. no question. I mean, we had really cool product at our disposable, at our disposal. Uh, you know, just a, just the truckloads of frog hollow peaches and pluots and plums that we brought in every year. I still can't find a stone fruit that tastes <laughs> like that. Uh, Where are y'all bringing them in from? California. Okay. Um, but you can't get that farm unless it's you buy a big load over here. Right, They're right, not right. just going to right. airmail you these stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the market was great. Uh, you know, I think the investors did everything they could to, yeah. to try to keep it where it needed to be. It may have been a little ahead of its time, but my true opinion is uh, it needed it needed more items in it that the everyday person could, you know, HEB came for his heart. They really did. I mean, I I can tell you three or four stories of products they bought that I was importing that they took the whole truckload of. I mean, HEB's rowdy. You know, competing against HEB is it's uh, you know kudos to them. I mean, they they've they've built a good business on getting rid of their competition and. But you talk about like even um, Chris Shepard ran into that where, you know, when he first opened up, you know, people were giving him a hard time about like, oh, well, you know, why is his pricing so high? Be like, because he's got to buy that farm's whole crop next year. Like, you know, he doesn't even have what they have right now because HEB's already bought it. So for him to get the local stuff that you want or for y'all to get the things in, there's a certain amount that you have to buy. 
and keep it away from these big stores from getting it. So yeah, sure. it is ahead of its time. And unless you can do HEB volume, you know, you're you're kind of up a creek, you, you know, are, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You are. I was buying a burrata. I'll just tell you one quick story. I was buying a burrata from Puglia, Italy. That was just it was unbelievable. It was in a small black container. Um, I was paying four fifty each, and I had to, and and it would it would um, it'd have a two week shelf life on it. And I, I sold it in our cheese and charcuterie counter. I sold it on the menu at the bistro. I mean, I just, this is the best burrata I've ever had in my life. Still have never had any burrata even close to it. And um, HEB would come shop us. So they'd send people in and they'd look at our product offerings all the time. And you know they were there writing all these notes. I mean, how, how many food critics are looking at retail stores? That's right. right. <laughs> so um, I, it would get held up in customs sometimes. And so I took 20 cases every two weeks, which I thought was a lot of burrata. I mean, right. you know. Um, yeah. That is a lot of burrata. I didn't get it for a week, and I'm like, oh, I got held up in customs. Next week, I didn't get it. The third week, I called my vendor, and I'm like, hey, man, where's where's the burrata? And he's like, yeah, nobody called you. And I'm like, no. And he says, you're not going to get that burrata any longer. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, HEB's bought the whole truckload from the import. They're taking everything we can bring in. Wow. And I go over to HEB, and they're charging $6 for it. <laughs> I was selling it for twenty in the restaurant, yeah, like right. with, the, with the chef. I mean, yeah. they not only stole the product, they made us look like we were gougers by selling wow. it at a decent margin. Was it in your backyard? Was it in the woodlands? It was, was the it store where? right down the street, really? oh. and that was the only one they brought it to. Oh, and then and then the press starts. You know, yeah, like, well, no, I mean, look, they're smart. Know. They're yeah. smart. They 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 you know, business is cutthroat, and at the end of the day, you know, if they can bring in a product that their competition's selling. And they can undercut the price and make sure. their competition look like they have no value. Right. Hey. Christ alive. <laughs> it's a difficult business. Come up with an item they can't get. That's there right. you go. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. we have retail wine at the kitchen, our, our, our second concept, our, our casual concept. We serve retail wines in the store. We don't, have a, we don't have an alcohol license. We don't have liquor license. We just have beer and wine. So you can come in, open a bottle there, have a glass there, take the bottle home, buy a case, buy six packs. I took over that store. We were buying retail wines. I said, you know, the beautiful thing about being a restaurant and not, you know, we have on-premise too because of our food sale percent. So my first thing I did in that store was I, I, I brought all my vendors in. I said, let me tell you something. Don't ever, ever, ever bring me a wine that HEB has. Ever. I don't want to play in that game. I don't want to. The Kroger specs HEB don't bring me a wine they have. And, and right. they said, well, you need all on-premise. I said, you know what? You're right. Only bring us on-premise wine. So at our kitchen concept, we sell uh on-premise restaurant wines at retail prices that's incredible and we do we do wine wednesdays we do we do percent off a bottle 10 percent off a bottle 20 percent off a six pack and 30 percent off a case and i make we make big wine deals and and bring them in and we have case stacks all over the store and it, it's just a it's a beautiful thing it's really it's really worked out really well for us and 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 everything that you're saying it's so interesting because i can kind of see smaller versions of that around Houston kind of come and go, come and go. Um, but to have it where it's it, it's part of a, a, a larger uh, a larger conglomerate, I'll, I'll get there eventually, um, I think helps protect it too. You know, yeah, if you sure. have, if you have, and I mean, I'm going to freaking nerd out here a little bit, but if you have Tris as the staple, that is the, you know, hey, look, this is what we can do. And then you have the more casual establishment and then you have the curate and then you have, you know, those, they all sound like they all are playing different pieces of the puzzle to help build a sustainable uh, conglomerate, if sure. that makes sense, as sure. opposed to a restaurant that may not be able to stand on its own because it is selling its wine 
at retail pricing, you know? Well, I mean, I also think it's a little genius for, for casual too. I mean, look, fast casual restaurants don't sell a ton of alcohol. Right. They just don't. So if you're, if you're, if you're 80% food sales, right? Wine, any, any, any alcohol you can move is gravy, <laughs> right, right? Right. You're paying the bills with the food yeah. well, you better be at least. Yeah, yeah. Right. So right. all the alcohol is just added bonus. Right. And if you can develop that into a great program, now you're now you're you know you're you're in a different level now when you have you were talking about how you know we'll, we'll call it more, a more casual dining establishment um when you have it as a retail style do you still have to train your employees just as much for like the wine service and so forth as you would because i see mom and pop struggle because they're not quite up here on price point and they're not down here where you know even if you offered wine, it's like, oh, okay, well, if, as long as they can get the cork out, you know, you're good. They're kind of playing in this middle here. But if you're doing it on the retail side, you know, what, what is that? And again, this is operational, but what type of training do, do your, your staff have for that? You know, so it, to be honest, it's the hard part. Yeah. Uh, the hard part is to get your staff at that level to research and develop wine. We have our, our, our wine vendors come pour every Wednesday. But to be honest with you, at that level, with that... Um, with that restaurant, I keep it very generic. I bring in varietals that most people know. Right. Cab, Malbec, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, <laughs> um, Pinot Noir. Um, I do get a little funky uh, around the world with some things, but it, it has to be, we have to be able to put signage on it that can relate to someone who has a generic wine palette. Mm -hmm. Look, I know quite a bit about wine, but I would tell you my palate and, and my wine knowledge is very generic. I mean, you can study wine your whole life and not be smart in mm -hmm. it. Right. I mean, it's just what it is. So. I, I buy labels that jump off the bottle. The uh, first thing I ask are, are what, 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 what the vendor is, what's the label look like, what varietal is it, and is it clearly written on the bottle? I want it to jump out at the guest. Mm -hmm. um, and then through trends, I've really decided what they want to drink. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then I make sure the management team and the, the people that are customer facing understand what those varietals are. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have variations of those varietals. So maybe we'll have a cab from South Africa that's a bit smoky and a bit earthy and is not fruit forward. I prefer that style of wine. I don't want a big fruit bomb. Mm -hmm. um, so, but we definitely have the juicy Napa cab that's <laughs> yeah, got a yeah. good tan structure that dries out your mouth too, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, and then we have some that don't dry out your mouth. So um, I think, we try to play in that and, and train them specifically on those. And then if we bring in something funky, we say, Oh, this is, if you like this, you'll like this. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I yeah. mean, trying no. to get them in a conversation of terroir and fermentation and you know, all that is, is not really what we focus on. I leverage big case stack. I just bought 150 last week wow. for one case stack. Wow. <laughs> because the vendor needed to, to make a move on it. So, I try to find the good deals, leverage mm -hmm. that for the customer. The restaurant makes a decent margin. The customer really makes out because, you know, Venmo is the new thing, right? Right. <laughs> so everybody and their mom's using apps to find out what you're selling the wine for at retail and whether or not you're getting a good deal. So I don't make any wine buy that I can't undercut the, undercut the internet. Sure. Gotcha. So I want to be 2 to $3 under what you can buy it online for at the kitchen. And if I can't meet that number, then I don't buy it. Does this wine sometimes go into rotation at your other look or at the never never? Okay, so this totally is totally separate. Okay, very cool. Yeah, Tris Tris is a, a fine dining restaurant. It needs alcohol sales to be at a good margin to warrant some of the labor we put in the food. Right. I mean, just bottom line, if you're if you're cooking everything from scratch and you're you're making everything in house, 
you, you got to make up that labor somewhere. Mm-hmm. Since it's fine dining, you guys have a sommelier on staff there? For, we do. Okay. So Joshua they're constantly Olivier. offering up pairings and, and you know things that would go well with dishes or not. He is. He yeah. works the room very well. Um, we have a, a, a som over the whole restaurant, Jossie Olivier, and then we have uh, a lady by the name of Cla- Claudia that does a lot of our wines and curate under Josh. Okay. Um, so Your bar program is incredible, too. I mean, even just the, like the butter um old-fashioned i mean that that's so much chef stuff that is is part of it and then um when i sat there i was actually fortunate enough the bartender just started pouring me little samples of like all the interesting things that they had i mean you had like infused like all, no 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 they were small they were small samples that's okay as long as i posted on instagram and was like, so we got some marketing out yeah a little marketing right but i'm fired no i hope not no 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 um yeah, we fat wash all the alcohols in the back of the house. We, we, we make some of the serves. We have a really good bar team. But we're, we're, we're actually uh, we're taking that to the next level with fat washing. I mean, we're, we're, we're into it. Um, that brown butter bourbon is our number one seller by far. We have, we have women drinking old fashions, which <laughs> I, I, maybe that happens a lot in the city, but I haven't seen a lot of that up there. I mean, they normally want a, you know, a fruity martini or something. I mean, we... Uh, really taming that bourbon down by that brown butter really makes it a lot smoother on the palate. And to be honest with you, it makes it to where I'll drink it because I don't like a real, you know, we, I don't like a real heavy, yeah. you know, burn from a bourbon personally. That smooths it. Basically, fat wash is when you take a fat and you wash the liquor. Okay. So we lo- we wash the liquor with the fat, but we infuse the fat with various flavors. So our our brown butter is infused with rosemary and uh, Madagascar vanilla bean. Sounds terrible. And then we fat wash the bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, you know, they, they may think, well, bourbon's supposed to be this, and it is supposed to be that, but... Um, and it still is. It still is, but, but it is. Man, well, it's elevated. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think elevation is a really good thing, especially as trends continue to evolve, right? Your, yeah. your bar has to evolve as well. And so that, that needs to be just as creative as the menu. Just keep the doors open and to keep people wanting to come into your facility and more importantly coming back. Well, speaking of that too, you made a statement where you're like, oh, that's typically what you see in the city. You know, y'all are in a very unique spot to be, I mean, my parents live in Willis and my sister lives in the woodlands. And it's like, holy cow, you have an establishment up there that I wouldn't expect to be in the woodlands. Not to say anything about the woodlands. That's not a knock on the woodlands or whatnot, but how creative it is and, and the uh, influences that you have. I mean, you have this incredible incredible ramen with this like super, super like deep broth that I'm like, well, shit, like that's that's a fantastic dish. Like, why are the, why are the woodlands so f***ing lucky? Like, what did we do? Like, I mean, I live out in Katy, so it's like, well, you know, it's it's completely different. But you got payway. You are doing you are doing food in a in, in a location and with clientele that yeah, there is probably a piece of that pie. You know, with the with the net income that's needed, the the education oh, yeah. about food and so forth. But that pie seems to be a little bit smaller than other areas of town. Um, and, and that statement, like you said, you know, hey, usually I see people drink this in the city and now they're doing it out here. You're kind of one of the first to put the benchmark out there in the woodlands. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I really do feel that way, especially. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't take credit for all that, but the the woodlands, when I, 2000, octopus is my favorite thing to eat, period, <laughs> and cook. In 2009, when I put octopus on the menu, I put baby octopus on the menu. It wouldn't sell. Nobody <laughs> wanted it. Uh, so I pulled it off and it just breaks my heart. So then I put two to four pound octopus, a little bit bigger, right? Wouldn't sell, take it off. So then I went to four to six, wouldn't sell. After fighting with it for a year, 
I put six to eight pound. I got the biggest octopus you can buy. <laughs> I put it on the plate, sent it out to the table, and I went to the table. I said, look, if you don't, if you won't eat it, I'll buy it. It became our number two selling appetizer and has been in the top five since. Wow. But now there's four or five restaurants in the Woodland that has octopus, yeah, but back then <laughs> um, we couldn't sell it. I, I think well, the Woodlands is evolving extremely quick, and it's evolved unbelievably since I came to it. Yeah. Um, the community is awesome. A lot of amazing people that are extremely well-traveled, um, that, that know food, and um, yes, your pie is smaller. But let me tell you what that does. It's funny. I did this. I won't tell you who the chef was, but I did this did this event down here a couple of months ago. And I walked in. The chef said to me, I was carrying a flat top. And he says, I am so tired of hearing your name. And I, I, hey, I, welcome. I said, wow, come to the city. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so, so good to see you, too. And he was like, well, if you're hearing my name all the way in the woodlands, I must be doing something right. And he's like, no, you don't have any competition. Oh, boy. That's not true. I said, well, we got Waterburger and Burger King. I mean, you know. <laughs> we got somebody. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, let me explain something to you, though. When you have a smaller pie, that makes you be that much better. Mm -hmm. Because if you piss off any part of that smaller pie, they're not coming back. And guess what? They talk to the rest of the pie. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. When you have a big pie because there's lots of people in a densely populated area, you can piss off 20% of them and still have a business. Right. When you have a small area with only certain people yeah. that you have to pull from, that understand or want to be a part of the experience you're providing, you can't screw up. So I actually think it's harder to operate there in a lot of ways um, because you don't get second chances. And if the community starts to talk about you, mm -hmm. that you're not, you're not, you know, you're you're not doing something that they like, yeah. it's really hard to recover from that. Yeah, because um, when you talk about the rest of the pie, you become the special destination that is not necessarily the one-off, but like you know, hey, we'll go maybe once a month or twice a month. But if you start to lose that, that could be that could be huge, you know. And so you gotta the the crazy thing that I think I saw was when uh, we ate at Hubble and Hudson, um, the the restaurant por portion of it. I think it was more steak centric and more and now. Tris has like such an Asian influence, and I wonder where that comes from. Because you know, it, through through your career, I didn't see anything. Doing a little bit of research, I didn't see anything that was like highlighting. Oh, well, he worked at this fine dining Asian restaurant, or like you know, hey, there was you know something that really influenced. And it's cool to see that on the menu. And I think the Woodlands is very blessed to have such a creative menu. Um, yeah, right Asian there. flavor to me is, is it allows you to lighten the food up and still have robust flavor. Mm -hmm. um, I was trained very French, so lots of heavy fats, and um, I try not to eat that myself. So I've tried to steer my cuisine somewhat out of that. I mean, don't get me wrong; we still have a truffle pasta that will put you down, <laughs> yeah. and, and and I still want to eat that. Uh, but I like that you can take some of these Thai and Korean and Asian flavors and put them together. What I find, what 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 I what I didn't know that after traveling to Singapore and Japan that I know now um, is that. As Americans, a lot of us are doing that style of cuisine, using a lot of those flavors, but we're fusing, we're fusing the ingredients. Right. Um, the biggest thing I've learned as a chef, and what's really changed my food the most, is is understanding the culture ingredients and and not fusing them with. A, we we may use a texture element that's not indicative to that cuisine if we cook in Thai or Korean or Chinese or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, but as long as it doesn't impede on the flavor. So you can have a bite of food that's got a lot of flavor in your mouth. 
I mean, it, it, boom. I mean, hold this smoke. This has got a lot of flavor, but right. does it have a direction? And do you understand what that direction? The best bite of food, in my opinion, tells a story. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that end better smack you in the face with what that dish is about. So if it's a crab, Korean crab dish, we better taste nothing but crab at the end. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that story is the, is the bite that you remember. You're, you're not going to remember just muddy flavor in your mouth. So when I stop when I start really stop fusing ingredients from, from other cultures and really, if we make it Thai, it's Thai. And we try not to cook anything in that dish that's not indicative to how they cook in Thailand. Um, we interchange the technique, but right. we don't interchange the flavor combinations. But still saying really true to it. Correct. And, and the- we really, re- really refined the food and it became something that people are like, holy shit, this is different. Mm-hmm. Do you see, do you see Tris? as a destination restaurant or do you see it as a central spot for the woodlands i'm biased it's not a trick, it's <laughs> not a trick question I, but. I mean it's, it's destination by far see, because I but i it. think but i think it's i think it's the community we're, we are pulling from from other areas sure. no question but the community is supporting it 100 percent we couldn't be more blessed than we are with the community in interest. I mean, we closed two days a week. We felt it was important to our to our employees for, for their families. We were spread out into seven days worth of business. Yeah. And we said, look, we're going to open five days. We're going to operate those five days really, really well. We're going to give our team time off. We're not going to make them come back at seven o'clock in the morning after getting nailed on a Saturday night for brunch. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna, But we're going to expect our team to operate at a very high level those five days. Yeah. But to do that, you have to have a backer that, that agrees with that philosophy and a backer who trusts you with that. Fortunately for us, it's his idea. That's cute. That, that's huge. Because I've, I've seen guys, they'll, they'll come in, yeah, I want the chef and I want this and I want this. Yeah, okay, you know, no problem. But, you know, we'll be closed Sunday or something like that. And then, like you said, as soon as they start to see the numbers or the, the margins or they, they come to that realization, they're like, no, 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 we're, we're switching this up. What really helped us too in the wilderness, we, we hired a really good team. I mean, we, we, we have Mr. Perry as, as a general manager out front, and he is the guest whisperer. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, and, and you know, we, we, we spent all the way to the valet stand. We want, we want if, if, if you dine with us and we know who you are, we can find your information. We tell our valet your name. I, our expectation is the valet addresses you when you pull up. Sure. Hi, Mr. Darren. Welcome back to Tris. We understand this is your first dining experience or your birthday. It's your anniversary. We take pictures of all the guests that eat with us regularly. We have a book, a VIP book. That's crazy. That we, we have pictures. I mean, it's almost creepy to some people. They're like, you want our picture? I'm like, yeah. We, <laughs> we need it because we want our valet to recognize you. We want our host stand to recognize you. Sure. We, Tris is an experience. It's not just about the food. It's, it's what the team has been able to accomplish, and it's in a feeling that you feel when you're sitting inside that restaurant. Yeah. Um, we want you to we want you to be blown away from the minute you step out of your car. If if the kitchen team cooks one of the best bites of food you've ever eaten, then then wonderful. But we also understand at that level that it's an event, and you're here to celebrate something most of the time. And even if it's just date night, you're still celebrating yeah, yeah. with someone. Yeah. And our job is to create that environment. And when I learned as a chef that the front of the house is just as important as the back of the house, um, if not more. Yeah. Um, that really that really changed what I do as an operator because if you don't if you don't understand that you're in big trouble in the restaurant business. Lots of good restaurants go out of business with great food and bad service. Yeah. Very few restaurants go out of business with really good service and okay food. But very few restaurants operate at that level that you have and at the price point that you have because you know I I would say. Um, you know, 
what was passing provisions or something like that, I gave those guys a lot of credit in the fact that it was like, I felt like the price point that you were paying, you were getting this level of food and this level of service and so forth. And I think I feel very much the same way about Tris, you know, um, where yes, it does, you know, the Woodlands does support a, a fine dining establishment, but maybe they're kind of used to the, the white tablecloth, the kind of, you know, steak and, you know, um, shrimp cocktail type of menu type of thing to have something that's so creative to have something that um, from the, the bar drinks that aren't traditional that are are pushing the envelope and, and things like that. That is the significant difference between what y'all do at Tris and what everybody else is doing. And even if you look at the kitchen, the kitchen is casual establishment, but still very chefy, you know, very, very chef focused, which is, which is awesome too, you know? And so I think you're pushing the envelopes on those things and then to push the envelope on the service side of it, you know, in my mind, that establishment is significantly higher price point wise than what what y'all currently have. And it doesn't have an awesome happy hour like y'all have. It doesn't have, you know, the curate series and things like that. This is this is a gem um, that that I hope, you know, that, you know, people continue to support. And it looks like they have, especially with all the press that you've been getting, which is really cool. Um, we're going to call that part two right there. Uh, we'll come back in part three. We'll talk a little bit more about um, all the establishments that, that you work with and all the events that you do, and then also talk a little bit about the future. Okay. Cool. So Perfect. stay tuned for part three. We'll be right back after a word from Duke's Premium Meats. Duke's Premium Meats Home Delivery is your one-stop shop for premium quality meats delivered right to your doorstep. Delivering all over the United States, Duke's Premium Meats offers you the best in quality by personally working closely with local ranchers and butchers. Duke's Premium Meats offers everything from fillets and lobster tails to heart-shaped ribeyes to Texas-raised Wagyu brisket. Get amazing meat delivered right to your door by using Duke's Premium Meats. Visit their site at www.dukespremiummeats.com. Welcome back to the Cost of Goods Told podcast. We are here with Chef Austin Simmons of Tris. Uh, we covered a ton in parts one and two. Just uh, scratch the surface. Too. Just really did, really did. Uh, one thing that I want to make sure that um, I elaborate on a little bit, I guess in part one, when, when we were talking about everything that you do, uh, I want to make sure that people understand that within Tris, there's that um, collaborate and the curate. Um, and the curate uh, all within kind of the same establishment and so forth. So people don't think that there's five different places or, or something like that, but like you can get those experiences at the same location, which is which is really cool because we've been talking about the menu, we've been talking about all of those things, and that's mostly been kind of tris at this point. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate just a little bit on what uh, curate is? Yeah, so Trist is unique in itself too. We're casual for lunch and high-end for dinner. Mm -hmm. We pull the tablecloths off, it's white marble at lunch. We're, we're, the menu's extremely different, hmm. way different price point. Um, you know, sandwich, salad, you know, cool you know, entrees that are easy to eat. I mean, nothing like dinner. Dinner is more formal. And then Curate is a restaurant inside of a restaurant, kind of like the Pass and Provisions was, if you would, but it's, Curate's not as big. So we convert two of our private dinings that overlook an area where we cook. And it's 30 seats um, and we can do a one top all the way to and we do buyouts of it all the time so um, and it's a prefix menu it is but yeah. curate stands for a curated tasting menu um, and I, I the name came about because I was talking about it. I said you know I really want to do a tasting menu that is curated around the guests go, we'll have a prefix but if you're vegan 
if you're vegetarian, if you're flexitarian, if you're pescatarian, <laughs> whatever you want to eat, we'll cook it. I mean, we, we have the beauty of having a restaurant next to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if I have all those ingredients at my disposal and I can't throw a menu together <laughs> with a little bit of notice for your dietary restriction, then, you know, then maybe we shouldn't be doing tastings. And this right. side of it is reservation only, correct? It is. Yeah. But okay. I mean, you know, we, every once in a while we'll do a few walk-ins. So, Very cool. You okay. know, um, but typically those, those are all booked online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we curate that that menu around that guest, and yeah, we change it, you know, probably every two to three weeks, um, and it just depends on the season and what what we're inspired by at the time. What yeah. we change it to, um, but yeah, it, it operates <laughs> Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We do off day dinners for larger groups. Okay, and uh, it's been awesome because you know, curate is 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 a great place to develop cooks. You know, a tasting menu is harder at first until you get your skill set down, but then it becomes a bit easier because it's controlled. Mm -hmm. You know that when you put out the hamachi, that the crab's coming next, right? <laughs> Unless we're working an off menu, you know, in the restaurant, you never know what's going to be on that ticket that's on that menu. If you really can hone in on a tasting menu and you, and you can you can remember what you were working before on that course and you know it's coming up, you can set that up. Right. And you're, and you know, it's it's almost like a symphony. It can just be, it can be one of the most magical cooking experiences, in my opinion. You can have as a chef, is a really well-run tasting format menus. It can be a blast because you're you're, you want to puke the whole time, but you can control it if you're a rock star, and 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 that's that feeling of, you know, we're 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 about to fall, but we're good enough that we don't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's. Uh, it's hard to find that on a normal line because in, in a tasting menu restaurant like Curate, you can run it with a couple of people mm -hmm. in a chef plating. Is it a satellite kitchen or do you operate that in the same kitchen? It's that the you're same doing? kitchen, but it's a different area. So we have induction and we have smaller ovens and it, it's its own line essentially. Right. But, but it's not much bigger than, you know, 12 feet long. Right. And when we referenced pass and provisions, pass was one thing, provisions was another. It had like pass had its own kitchen kitchen, you know? So I, are, are some of your guys doing double duty with? Oh yeah. That we, we, damn. well, I have two cooks that only do curate okay. and then they do offsite parties and events. We like to go offsite and do different things. So, Not like you already have a full table, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> a full I mean, plate, huh? <laughs> whatever, whatever you need, whatever what, is, is what we're there to do. So, so it sounds like, in through your own words, it's, it can be you can be on the edge of vomiting, right? For the cooks, you're developing cooks, right? And they're under yeah. some high pressure, so that's exhilarating for the cook. How is it exhilarating for the customer? What can they expect out of that? You know, the service is a bit different. It's just you know, Tris is actually chasing it pretty hard, which has been <laughs> cool because the bistro and curate was bistro service was good. Curate was phenomenal. Tris is really, really good, and Curate's still phenomenal. So it's <laughs> it's uh, it's been interesting how that change has taken place. But because we know what's next, because we can stage out your meal, we can do more wow moments in that yeah, experience yeah. Yeah. than we can do when we don't have the information we need. Sure. Um, and sometimes in Tris, we can get the information, and sometimes we can't. The more information we have on the diner, the more we can slip in those wow moments that you're never going to forget. Right. You're not always going to blow someone's you know hair off with a bite of food it's very subjective like okay. i might be wowed by something you're yeah, not yeah, going to yeah. be yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so we can't always bank on that bite of food blowing somebody out of their chair we have to bank on those little acts of service that provide those wow moments that that guest never forgets and that's what brings them back to the restaurant so curate is a is a a, um, a playground for that because you're not coming in curate if we're not asking you three or four questions before yeah. you come. <laughs> we're we're gonna pry that out of you, and then it allows us to really 
manipulate that dining experience. So the, and the guest has to be open to that, right? I mean, it can't yeah. be that structure like I gotta have. You know, the the walls need to be here because you guys are playing outside of those walls. Yeah, it's a dining experience, right? It is, and then we're also allowed to add wine to that meal to every course, and and we have really good percentage of wine pairing uh, and curate so uh, that's cool that's really cool and we pair wine a little bit different uh, maybe a lot of psalms pair it though we pair an ingredient not the dish hmm. um and we typically pair the the hardest ingredient of the dish um and we find that is awesome to what happens to that food when sure. when, when you have that pairing that way and we're, we're very european in our approach like you know we we are I hate to say protein centric, but you can rest assured when you come eat eight courses with me, <laughs> five of them are going to have protein, right, right, right. Yeah. and you're not going to Waterburger when you leave. Right. And let's not that unless Nordic you got cuisine. wasted and you need to fill, you know, you need to soak it up with a bun or something. Well, they're but they're owned by Chicago now, so I mean, you know, it's it's going to be tough. Yeah, you know? I'm I'm with JJ. Let's buy it. I don't think anything will change, but I'm excited. Yeah, I agree. So you know, we're, in 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 we're we're progressive like a European tasting menu, I and mean, we don't focus on making things look like a caterpillar and it tastes like nothing you know our food has soul yeah. it has temperature my plates are at an exact amount of degree mm-hmm. like i know exactly how long it takes my plate to cool down from the pass to the dining room i set that temperature in the hot box it stays at that temperature for a reason um our cold food is cold our hot food is hot that brings out the salt that brings out the acid right. Wakes it up. Uh, it, and if if you don't eat something and are comforted by it and tris or curate we're not doing our job i'm not here to make it look like picasso uh i'm here to to for you to take a bite of food and go wow right um but, but to the, have to have a restaurant with Tris being so, you know, structurally found and I mean, just a solid restaurant on its own. And then you're going to throw the curveball of, okay, now we're also going to do um, a prefix menu or, you know, this the specialty menu on top of that. And then to also then say, now we're also going to do a collaboration series and bring in somebody else from the restaurant and from the menus that I've seen. And, and for those who don't, if I didn't explain it again, and, and part one, the collaborate series is where you and a chef from another establishment will actually put an eight course dinner together for you know i think the last one was almost 35 people yeah well, we, i mean one we did with will was 70. see see yeah yeah That's help monday nights you bring yeah, william in the house that place is packed <laughs> <laughs> well the the cool thing about that too and i mean mentioning will i think that that would be the easiest menu that i could kind of identify and see that everything had a bit of both of y'all in it and and i'm jumping ahead a little bit but we saw that at the houston barbecue festival mm-hmm. where it was the smoked beef ch- tongue and then like the asian elements to it you know and then um it was the the pork belly and i mean just it was it wasn't hey i got uh, sorry going back to the collaborate with the with the menu that you did with will it wasn't hey i got these first three you got the next two i'll take the last one and one it was it, it really, it really was a, yeah. a collective together, which is, which is really cool. But also another freaking curveball that you got to throw at yourself when you've already trying to think of, okay, what's going on in the restaurant? What am I going to push next on the envelope with the curates? You know, now I have to push the envelope again. You know, it's so. so sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. My job at this point is to grow cooks. Uh, the awards are great the notoriety are great merely because it grows business, but I don't need any of that. And I learned that a couple of years ago. I mean, of course, don't get me wrong. When we read awesome articles, I try to, I get excited, but I I try to make it about the team. I mean, look what you're going to be able to put on your resume. Not, I mean, my resume is great. 
you know, and I've worked really hard for that. So, but what can those cooks take with them? So my job at this point is to create a legacy through cooks. I really, in the industry, want to make an impact in fundamental cuisine. You know, sauce work's being lost. I mean, we don't even know what that is. We think an aioli sauce work. I mean, look, we have aiolis. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not downplaying what that is, but housewives make those, right? right? I mean, anybody with a, with, with a Vita Prep can yeah, make an aioli, mm-hmm. but can you make a stock? Can you reduce it, convect it? I mean, you know, I, I feel like a part of the reason why I'm here is to give that back to cooks. So how do I step back and, and, and be humble about that, but really grow them? What do I do? And that's, that's the question I've asked myself for the last two years. And collaborate is the first thing that came to mind. Okay, so what is my biggest problem in the food industry today is a lack of loyalty. I mean, I've been with this company for nine years. That's a long time for a chef to be working for a company, in right. my opinion, right? These guys, and especially cooks and sous chefs, they hop around, mm-hmm. they, they get a little bit of your playbook, and they think they know it all, and then they're yeah. gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So how do, we, how do we slow that down and make it more healthy for all restaurant operators? And collaborate to me was, okay, let's bring in other chefs, and let's let them work these dinners. My guys that are really hungry, that really want to grow, let's let them work these dinners with these other chefs. And either one or two things are going to happen. Either they're going to learn a shit ton, right. which is going to be great for them, or they're going to see they already got it really well with me, <laughs> and I win either way. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and that, helps, that helps me learn. It allows me to make relationships with chefs in the cities and, and, and farther than that because I have I am been stuck with my head down for a lot of years trying to hone my craft in. I haven't got out a lot. And I think, you know, originally I wanted Collaborate to be what me and Will made it, you know, at that first dinner. But... What I learned is, is it's hard to coordinate that with chefs. Me and Will are, we, we, we read each other like, I mean, I, I just, I, he, he knows what I'm looking for and, and I know what I'm looking for and then he knows what he's looking for and I kind of understand why he's looking for that. It's very hard to explain, but it, mm-hmm. when we create a bite of food, we test it and we test it, but typically by the third time, that, that dish is... You know, it's yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's because two skill sets come together for that. The, the, the deal is, is that, you know, Thomas Keller, in my mind, is who the first chef I studied and is one of the still, I, don't, I, I can't think of anybody, in my opinion, that's like him in the United States. Not because he revolutionized some food in, in the United States, not because he has been a three star Michelin for so many years, but look at his proteges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got so many proteges that have come out. From underneath him, the best bite of food of my life was at was at Corey Lee's restaurant venue in San Francisco. I, I flew my wife out there four months later just to eat that damn bite of food again. Uh, we didn't do anything but go back to that restaurant. Uh, I, I I'll never forget it. That was his chef de cuisine for 15 years. He is he's taken Thomas is elements and mixed Korean flavors into it. And he's doing Thomas Keller tastings, but with Korean technique and ingredients in it. And I'm telling you, it's, it's show stopping food. Um, you know, I think, but that's what I respect about Thomas. So I was fortunate when, when, quite a few awards and you know i don't yeah. think i'm one of the top 10 chefs in houston by well, any means congratulations on it by the way uh, whatever <laughs> i appreciate <laughs> see, it see it's that whatever right, right, right. i, I think like i think that my job now is to get my 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 cooks mm-hmm. to get to that level mm-hmm. and if i can't get them to that level then what really what really have i built 
I've proved that I can cook. Sure. Well, I knew I could cook a long time ago, or I wouldn't have chased this industry the way I have. Right. I wouldn't have spent all the nights and weekends at work um, if if I didn't think I could cook. I mean, I would have already delivered milk again. I mean, those guys make good money. Right. You know, I could do that the rest of my life and probably retire decent. You know, one of the best things anyone ever said to me was, "We're all cooks." That doesn't that doesn't mean you're a chef. A chef is a leader of people and process. And that's the difference in leadership and supervision. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to supervise with process. It's very hard to lead. Mm -hmm. Leading is something very different than sure. what supervising is. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't ever cross that bridge, you know, and, and so if, if a chef is leader of people and process, then we need to be the leaders of people and help them with their careers. And in return, that comes back to you too, right? Yeah. I mean, the more people you grow, the, the better off you're gonna do, and the more people wanna work for you because yeah. they see that you're turning out talent and yeah. these people's lives are better because they work for you. Yeah. Your talent pool is growing much easier and quicker, right, than someone who doesn't really care. And is that someone who's actually leading like yourself? What do you see, what's your vision? And I hate to sound like that corporate question. What's your vision for yourself in the next five years, young man? Because really you are a young man to me, but in all seriousness, what, what do you want to do now? What's next? I, you know, I would like to operate a company with multi-concepts that, you know, we're not pigeonholed into, into one thing. Um, I'd love to come to Houston. I, I feel like I've, I've been been making my name and, and here for a lot of years, and I think that's worth exploiting a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess next for me would to do a brick and mortar in Houston. I, I would love to. I don't know what that concept is uh, just yet. Got some good ideas, but yeah, um, sure. you know, I I think the the restaurant industry is in a in an interesting place right now. Um, you know, one of my one of my board members, Hydar, uh, is talked a lot about virtual restaurants and you see what I can't remember the chef that's coming back to Houston what's yeah, I forget you know too but I know exactly what Gabe, it's all delivery Gabe yes. I think it's Gabe uh, yeah. he's a talented chef you know and, and and you look at what these our casual restaurants are doing in Uber Eats and uh, um, you know you can't build that platform if you don't make money so I think there's a very interesting spot right now of, of where restaurants are headed. Mm -hmm. um, Houston's an interesting market. I sit back and I watch it from afar. I mean, these restaurants pop up, they're big hits, and then sometimes they, they don't work out. And it's like, how could they have been such a big hit with so many people to pull from and not work out? Um, so, you know, it, you gotta make the right move. Um, I, I don't. I definitely don't wanna go jump into a bad decision sure, because sure, sure. With, with the space, but right. obviously I, I do wanna grow and I think I think we've put Tris in a really good position since we've reopened with that, that leadership style. I mean, I'm able to walk away from that restaurant under Chris Perry and Courtney and Brian um, and Joshua, Dominique and Angela. I mean, those, those guys can, they can operate that place at the same level. I mean, Allison Cook came in for, for our review. I had posted, I was flying on a private jet to Key West because one of our customers was so kind to send me and my wife to Key West on our vacation. <laughs> and uh, we hadn't been reviewed yet, but it, we'd been open nine months. I mean, I assumed she was already coming. <laughs> I didn't think she was coming. So she, she comes and on that Saturday night and has dinner and I'm not there. And they call me like, oh, some cooks here are freaking out. I'm like, look, you guys got this. Do what you do, right? Just do what you do every day. I wouldn't have left if I didn't think you had it. Mm -hmm. That was Saturday. We were closed Sunday and Monday. I show back up Tuesday at lunch, and she's sitting in the dining room. 
uh, for our second visit. <laughs> and I'm like, damn. So I, you know, I go out there and I'm like, after lunch, and I said, wow, Miss Cook, you're back. I said, you know, so good to see you. And she goes, how was your vacation? I'm like, how'd you know I was on vacation? And she's like, well, you posted flying on a private jet on Instagram. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, good point. And yeah, she's yeah. like, I was like, it was very good. I, I, thanks for coming. I appreciate you coming to see us. She said, you know, it must be the, the highest honor for you as a chef to be served the meal I was served in your restaurant while you were on vacation. That to me is yeah. when you know you've made it. That was right. the biggest and, and I've never had a bigger compliment in my career, yeah. ever. I mean, she could have given me a half a star review and that one compliment about that one meal would have meant everything to me because the team did it without me. Yeah. And none of these, none of my chefs right now have ever been a part of a, a five-star restaurant. You know, they haven't. They haven't had that experience at the mansion like I had where, mm. you know, you broom all the vegetable wrong and you're getting yelled at. I mean, that's, that's the discipline, right? So uh, for them to be able to do that without me, I knew that I had finally stepped back in my career and led more instead of supervising. Right. Here's your checklist. Checklists are good, but they don't create, they don't create uh, empowerment. They don't create, you know, they have to be bought in way before you give them that damn list or they're just going to check the box. You can, you can taste an inspired menu. You can taste an inspired dish. You know, I mean, we've, we've talked to different guys where I'm like, dude, you were pissed off when you, when you made this recipe, like, weren't you? Or like, you're mad that people don't understand Greek food, how it's supposed to be understood. And so this dish is really just throwing it in my face, you know, type of thing. And so if you have that team that's, that's bought in and empowered and so forth, you can taste a, a huge difference. Chris Perry and me, uh, he was the general manager of Robards and he came along and he's really helped me understand that part of, of, of how do we get there and how do we lean on each other, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's not about me being the boss. It's about people doing things without me telling him they need to do them. And he's just been such an inspiration on that front. And, and, uh, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. Yeah. And when you can step back and find that, um, that's just really been a godsend for me because four years ago I'd have been like, you know, <laughs> You don't like it? Let me show you the back door. Uh, but you don't develop people that way. And I probably lost a lot of really good people over the years because I wasn't a good enough leader. Mm -hmm. I say probably. I have lost a lot of really good people over the years because your job as a leader is to look inside that person and, and see what they're capable of, not what they can do right now. And how do, you, how do you pull that out of them? That's deep, dude. That's hard to do. And a lot of people just assume do it themselves. You don't grow that way and you damn sure don't develop people that way. So, you know, uh, my job is to look at those people and for years I never did that. You're, you're just, it can't, you can't do what I need you to do right now so you have no value to me. So when you talk about expanding to a second location into Houston, now Tris is, Tris is one of those examples where I talk about, well, you know, I'll use the example of like Trinity or like Oxheart or, you know, any of those super chef focused restaurants. Now, those establishments seem to have anywhere between a, a five and seven year type of shelf life because they are so attached to the chef. They are so much that chef has to be there every day. Uh, I would argue that. And chef, I mean, look, uh, Gordon Ramsay's got Michelin star restaurants right. all over <laughs> all over continents. Wolfgang Puck has Michelin star. I mean, look at. Look at Joel Robichon and what he had mm -hmm. when he passed away. I think it's all about developing those people. Yes, I, I and I do agree that you you it is a lot about those chefs in these some of these restaurants that you mentioned. But mm -hmm. I mean, you're seeing Shepard do it right now with four very different concepts. Right, and uh, he can't be in those restaurants every night. I think you know, I huh. think I think you. In my opinion, you need to work backwards. Okay, where a lot of people don't. You say I want to do this concept, and I'm going to go find a space and force it in that space, and this is what we're going to do. <laughs> 
knowing your community and what's around you, the Woodlands has taught me and, and, and it's the best blessing they could have ever given me. You can take concepts that work in certain places and go transplant them in another place and it won't work. Mm-hmm. It just won't. So I think I have a lot of really good, I, I can create food on lots of different levels. Uh, I know that now. Um, so as long as we have the right build out with the right space and we can get the right bar with the right amount of seats that make sense for the rent <laughs> and everything else that comes along with that financials, we can be as whimsical with the food as we want to be as that that area will allow us to be and you do that by doing your homework of that area you go watch diners you go see how they dine see what they're drinking sit at the bars see other restaurants that are in the area that are successful and what people are eating if you go to a classic italian restaurant in a certain area and everybody's eating chicken and parmesan chicken parm you know what you need to serve on that menu in that area right right so i think i think and that's taken a lot of ego out of it, which is really cool to see you say, you know? Well, you can't build a platform for growing the cook. We're always going to cook with proper technique, but we don't always have to cook fancy food to do that. If, if, if you want to build that platform to grow as many people in your career as possible, you better have successful restaurants. Because yeah. if, you, if you have misses, that investment becomes a lot more difficult to obtain. Look, if you cook from your soul and you don't worry about all that, and you've got the fundamentals to back it and you cook what the people want, typically the reviews are going to follow. Now, sometimes that doesn't work, but that's okay. Like you got to decide, do you want to be in a, you know, uh, do you want to, do you want to build the platform or do you want to only focus on the, the, the national attention? And, and, and I mean, look, the ideal world, you have both. Mm-hmm. And that's the crossroad that I've been in the last three years is how do I still maintain something that's forward thinking in the industry like the 10 year old cow that we launched you know oh, yeah. like that was something groundbreaking for me as a chef to be a part of something that quite frankly is just not being done in very very few yeah. places in the world uh, i've been working on that since 2015 you know people don't even understand you know they don't even understand what it is they're like oh my god you age an animal 10 years it's like <laughs> not necessarily you know um so i i hope that i can still be an industry leader with, with what we put in the concepts, but I need to provide better living for, for people that work want to work for me in, in the company. Yeah, yeah. And take care of your, your employee, not your customer, or something I do a lot of reading on, because I think I think if you take care of them, they're gonna take care of that customer. In, in, in Europe, they're harvesting uh, bulls uh, 10 to 15 years of age, and they're, they're slowly feeding them out, and they're saying that some of the best beef in the world, a specific guy in Spain's cave aging them. And I saw that on Steak Revolution on Netflix in 2015. And I'm like, oh, this is genius. I am extremely good friends with Jordan Beeman, who is the heir or the son of Ronald Beeman, who uh, started Heartbrand. Um, and Jordan is taking over the company and, and growing it. And um, in 2015, we were decent friends, but we weren't what we are today. And I, and I started talking to him about older cows. He's like, Austin, it's just not efficient. You know, I said, well, what do we, how do we? And so I kept pushing him on it and hounding him on it. And, you know, and, and really, I, I think uh, it is, it's a good way for him to kind of do something different in the industry. And, and, and the 10-year-old was for him, not for me. I mean, ultimately. Um, so he calls me like, I don't know, I think it was a year and a half ago. I think I figured it out. He says, these mama cows that are being bred back every year, the way the cattle business works is you have a – you have a the mama cow has a, a calf. Mm-hmm. The calf's on mama on grass for six months, and then that mama uh, gets separated. They wing them, and then that that calf has enough muscle structure to be a, a breeder or not. Mm-hmm. 
regardless if it's a bull or a cow or what that program needs, and then that, that calf gets sent to a feedlot. Mama bear stays on the pasture and is typically already pregnant with that next one. And so she's giving back, right? Giving back, giving back. Well, they keep her on pasture until she doesn't breed back anymore. They give her two, two chances. Just so happens, Akaushi kind of averages eight to 12 years. So he says, what if we do a breed back cow? And I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, we'll take it after, you know, nine years of grass and we'll send it to the feedlot for six months just to get a little corn in the diet. Mm-hmm. And we'll harvest that. Well, what I didn't know at the time is, is that USDA will only grade a cow that's younger than two and a half years. Hmm. So they will, they will grade it fit for consumption, but they will not put a marbling score on it. So these ranchers have no value in a, in a breedback cow. Sure. They go to cow harvest plants. There's a, there's a feedlot plants that harvest cows and there's cow plants that harvest cows, right? And so right. all these mama cows are going to uh, these cow kill plants and they're becoming no roll beef and they grind the whole animal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a real good way to highlight mom who's put back all this effort. And we talk about, you know, the next generation caring about where their food comes from and care about how the animals are raised. Well, so I, I, I said, Jordan, this is genius. I mean, look, you, you not only have an older animal, you have a poetic story that we can tell at the table that guests are going to really cling to. Right. Um, so we fed one out and we tried it. And I said, look, this is, this is, this is something. It, not only is this a story, this is really good. Now, we had to play with aging a lot. Mm-hmm. You can't age a 10-year-old cow the same way you age a 2-year-old cow. So after trial and error in four cows, we've developed rail aging and wet aging uh, the animal for a specific amount of time and uh the 10-year-old i have at work right now is it's just a smoke show i mean we do a side-by-side tasting of two-year-old akushi 10-year-old akushi and a 100-day dry age two-year-old mm. and you get two ounces two and a half ounces of each on the plate and uh we we sold i think 30 orders this weekend all weekend two nights and uh everybody picked a 10-year-old really and which is unbelievable because it's no raw beef, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's it it, it, it it's uh, so it's creating value for the rancher. Hopefully, I think it's going to really take off. You're already seeing Vaca Vieja do it in California. I think Jordan's the first one to do it with a Wagyu animal. Okay. And and what's so great about that is that cow already slowly intermuscular marbles very slowly as it's fed out on grass. So mm-hmm. what you end up getting is real flaky intermuscular marbling instead of big veiny fat. Okay. Um, and you know it it just punches you in the face with beef flavor so you get you know i like dry age that's beefy that you get nutty caramel popcorn notes out of it um because i want to highlight what the animal ate right Uh, imparting mold into dry age that makes it taste like blue cheese or foie gras or all these things and and i hope i don't offend anybody but but personally if i want blue cheese on a steak i put blue cheese on a steak right all right so uh, basically you know I, i don't i don't know why we're trying to impart that into an animal uh, from a from a mold growth standpoint, uh, we should be highlighting that animal's purity mm-hmm. and what it ate and what we fed that animal. That's what we want it to taste yeah. like. You take a venison and you feed it on a, a blueberry farm and you eat that meat. It tastes a whole lot different than one that's fed out on grass oh, in South yeah. Texas. Yeah, uh, and I've seen that firsthand. Um, so I I. I I, we we you get that beefy flavor out of this ten year old without any any mold impartation whatsoever, and uh, you still have a wet age steak, which a lot of people like because it has a good moisture content. What yeah. people don't like about dry age is oftentimes it's not done very well and it's very it's very gamey mm-hmm. and it's dry, uh, which 
you're dehydrating the water. So right. that's essentially what you're 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 there. So I think it has crazy amount of lakes. I think you're going to start seeing a lot of people do it. Um, I think you're going to see some media get on on. It was really hard for us to sell. The media just didn't. They didn't. Nobody's they didn't grasp the concept. They, mm-hmm. they just. I, I think they they couldn't quite grasp what the whole story and what it meant to the industry. It, it's it's giving back to the customer by giving back to the rancher. It's it, it, there's an evolution there that's really hard to explain mm-hmm. if you don't care to understand the meat business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, you know, I that cow that lives on that pasture nine years is living a hell of a lot better life than that one in the feedlot. Yeah. Not that the ones in the feedlot are living bad lives, but. You know, yeah. uh, Mama Cow is pretty stress free. You know, I think uh, I think that that's awesome, and the fact too that you know when when Will was talking about it, he said you you could I could put all of that in front of a customer, and they may not give a damn, but they love the end product, and if the end product is freaking phenomenal, and like you said, people are choosing it hand over foot over anything else. It's it's just one of those where like eventually it'll catch on simply because it tastes freaking phenomenal. You know, yeah, Part we call William a brisket whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody that cooks brisket like that guy. <laughs> We were talking to we were talking last week and he's you know he's just talking about brisket and I'm I'm so curious about smoked meats I mean I I, I probably annoy the shit out of him with the amount of questions <laughs> I ask not because I want to be like him in smoking meats but just because I'm intrigued by it mm-hmm. and you know he, he got all he says I can smoke a brisket in a toilet toilet bowl you know you give me a fire to matches you give me an empty toilet and I can smoke a brisket but it's because that. I've got so much experience and understanding what that piece of meat looks like in the process. And I just have so much respect for what those guys do. I mean, if you've really run an offset, and I'm not talking about wrapping and 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 breaking the time down and and you know using charcoal, like run an offset with wood, leave the meat unwrapped, and smoke that thing for 14 hours or whatever it takes because of how big that meat is, and have the stress of actually you know caring about what you put out. I mean, it's a science man. It, it, it's a chef it's yeah. it's it you know pitmasters are, are just as much cooks as chefs are and i think i think that's interesting how the industry right now doesn't that you know they're starting to change it mm-hmm. uh but i mean look i i've taught a lot of guys how to do a lot of things in this industry culinary wise smoking a brisket's been one of the hardest things i've ever done to get it to the level that yeah. i mean <laughs> will's brisket changed my life i have never been able to get mine to taste like his so you know I, and yeah. I'd have it done near as many, obviously. So game, but game on? No, no. I'll, I'll leave the brisket smoking to Will. Uh, so, so, I mean, as competitive as you are, right, and just talking with you extremely. for an hour, Yeah. You don't, do you see that as an avenue that you would be interested in pursuing? I smoke a lot of meats myself, but I tend to do, like, ribs, beef ribs. Um, brisket's the, the unicorn for me. Hmm. Um, and it's because I'm a, I'm a flat guy, flap guy. I, I the point's great, but a yeah. really good flap is, in my opinion, where it's at. I don't eat a lot of fat in my, you know, I try not to eat a ton of it, and it's not that I don't like it. I just, if you dry out the flap and the point's good, big deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think so. I do a lot of beef ribs, smoking a lot for events. I mean, I, I use Will's kind enough to let me use his pit all the time. I mean, I I, I do four or five barbecue events a year, but in order to get to Will's level, you need to cook thousands of briskets. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just not that ate up with it. I am, but I'm not. And I, you know, I, I definitely think elements of smoke is in my future, near future, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I don't know if I'll be doing the smoking, but <laughs> <laughs> I, you'll be in the game. But I'll, 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 I'll be in the game. I, you know, you, what, 
Asian flavors that I like to use. When you put them with smoked meats, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. If you know how to do it till it's subtle, a lot of guys are overdoing it, in my opinion. But if you know how to do it where it's subtle and you can really highlight that animal and that smoke, when you know, when you have the right smoke, it's. Uh, me and Will have created some bites of food that 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 I dream about. I've been very fortunate to go all over the world and eat very high-end tasting menus at really nice restaurants. I mean, when I, I went to France last year, we ate 13 tastings mm. in 16 days, all in two-star Michelins. I mean, I, God has blessed me with that. I've eaten some really damn good food. Uh, but some of the stuff me and Will's turn out has just stopped me in my shoes. And I'm just like, man, you know, I've, <laughs> Will's been doing it, I don't know, seven years. Uh, I think, I, you know, I've been doing it since I was 18. You know, I there's very few times that I've just stopped and go, God bless, you know, um, because of what that, 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 that happens when, when, yeah. you know, when, it, when those, when those flavors come together, it's something very different, something very different. So they're, they're incredible. This, this has been incredible. Yeah. This whole conversation, I really appreciate you opening it up so much. And I mean, you know, we talked some about the food, but kind of like most of our podcasts, this is life lessons yeah. and, you know, things about food, but not necessarily your menu, you know, all that much, which is really freaking cool. We didn't uh, bring up how popular he is, all his accolades. And nah, come on. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not important. You come come meet the team at Tris and... and uh, you know that that that'll be where you'll really appreciate it i think but you know i'm still very i'm still very matter of fact about cooking mm -hmm. it's you know it's, it's got to be the same way every time I mean, that's another thing i love about will i mean he's a king of consistency with barbecue i mean you can argue whether he's the best barbecue restaurant in my mind he is mm -hmm. not just because i think he smokes the best brisket but because he is the king of consistency mm -hmm. if i come one day and it's great and I come the next day and it's not good, yeah. you're a shit leader. And, and that's that in my sense is what, what I love about Will and what he's done is that it's the same way every time. I'm the same way. So I, you know, my cooks know that we're, we're there to create an expectation, um, but they know at the end of the day, I'll swim the ocean for them. Well, I'm just so glad we caught you at 32 on our podcast because I mean, the just hearing all of this and, and being able to talk so candidly with you, the, the future just looks so and bright well, like, I appreciate it's just it, Thank it's you so absolutely much. It incredible well it, it, it's awesome to hear this from because i'll always say like our first <laughs> podcast and, and the relationship that i've developed with are over at harlem road barbecue a guy who worked under Wolfgang the Puck. the number two of yeah, wolfgang yeah, puck yeah. you know and just a wealth a wealth of knowledge uh it's kind of cool to be able to bounce questions and ideas and, and and have that conversation with someone who's who's probably in the beginnings of that next huge step in his career and i really do see that that's going to be a lot of fun to see but seriously this this has been absolutely awesome and i know we've we've gone long and taken up a shit ton of your time no no i i, I could talk all night man i i enjoy it thank you this, thank this you for great. giving me an avenue to tell my story sure. so you know that Talk means a lot to me because you know sometimes we don't always get to say what we want to say you know get back in the kitchen and cook some more well you're welcome anytime <laughs> Thank we you promise we'll have will back on you guys so we, come, we should get will on and do it together huh show. yeah we'll do something <laughs> well, we're gonna do like a tv series between you two because the, the the stuff that you've put out and the and the reception that you two have had it is it is really cool to see two minds like that and two two completely different journeys into the culinary world and into restaurant management and you know into into those spaces um um, one that starts with kind of the traditional path of going to school and so forth and will kind of just freaking learning hard knocks and for both of you to stand up there and say yeah you know I, I learned so much from him and he learned you know and he says the exact same things <laughs> you know something about will that most people don't talk about I mean how about this dude opening a small trailer 
Yeah. Having a cush, well, I don't know how cush it was, but it was a decent job. He was supporting his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spinning it all around and going and sleeping in that trailer and stoking an offset. And his first pit wasn't glamorous. Right. Right? right? Like, who does that? I mean, look, I have worked many a hundred hour weeks in my career i have i have pushed myself to the brink but i've never laid my head down in a friggin' trailer yeah. and got up every 30 minutes and stoked a fire so that my customer could have a consistent product i mean you talk about the american dream that that man made it for himself uh i had a good woman behind him yeah uh, oh, sure. <laughs> but, but i mean come on you know i mean i think i think you know that that it will tell you that he started this industry because it was an excuse to drink beer uh, yeah, empty can. What do you say? Yeah, empty beer can. And that probably is why he started smoking meats, but that shouldn't be what he's remembered for. Will should be remembered for the fact that he did something that most people in America just aren't willing to do and turn it into a really good business for his family. And, I mean, if you don't respect that, then I don't really know, you know. Before we quit, tell us where Tris is located. Tris is located at 24 Waterway in the Woodlands, right across from the movie theater. Okay. Um, curates inside of Tris, yeah. and uh, the kitchen's located on Research Forest in Gosling. It's about a nine-minute drive, if that, depending Tris. on traffic. And social media, how they keep up with you guys on social media? Uh, Dine sip taste is the hashtag for Tris. Tris is on um, Tris Woodlands is on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, mine is Chef Austin Simmons uh, on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, yeah, Dine the Kitchen. Uh, is 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 the the tag for the kitchen? Any so. any, uh, any shout outs? Any closeouts? Anybody you want to say hello to? Your mom? You know, your stepmom? <laughs> well, of course, you know my family. Mom, stepmom. Yeah. It's great. Always been very supportive through your career. Yep. Yeah. Always, mom, mom, and yeah, my all both. I have. I'm blessed to have four parents, which my my daughter is now blessed blessed to have uh, four grandparents. <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, I think they've they've really supported me through it, and 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 you know, my wife, you know, can't can't say enough good things about her. She sits at home and raises that little girl while I while I work hard every it's night, and it's a, it's a hard job. she's got her hands full. So, um, thank you, sweetheart, for all that you do. <laughs> well, throughout the podcast too, you've constantly mentioned team members and 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 guys that are part of the organization. So that's really really cool to hear because it's not like you said, it's not about you. Um, this has been an absolute wonderful podcast. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're going on part three is at 53 minutes right now. And I, I have enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. guys. Um, I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Um, I don't think you need it. I don't think, you know, just remember us as, as you grow. We'll drink beer and, and, uh, you know, talk run shop. around a barbecue pit or something. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you to uh, Duke's Premium Meats for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you for Beavers for hosting us and giving us a great space uh, for our guests. Um, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another one. Um, thank you once again, Chef Austin, for coming on and, and spending so much time. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Houston, for all the support in, in the Woodlands. Absolutely. Tune in, like, and subscribe. The Woodlands is Houston, by the way. It's, it's not South Dallas, I, I assure you. <laughs> Can we do the same thing for Katie, or is Katie too far? I'm not worried about so Katie. I'm not there. <laughs> Woodlands is well worth a drive. Yeah. It Absolutely. is North Houston. Yeah, definitely. Go get, go get the experience at Tris. Go, go try all of those different things.